Holy shit. How's that, Russ? Is that is that an open for you? Holy shit. The Eagles are Super Bowl fucking champions. And we are off. We've already gotten fined by the FCC twice in this episode. This is good. So, uh, so look, so we're recording this Monday night at 8.30 because um, the schedules and time does no, no longer exist. Uh, Adam is flying back from the Super Bowl as we speak or en route to New York. So we're being joined by uh, Kevin Kincaid, who uh, writes most of our Eagle stuff for Crossing Broad. Kevin, yo. It's a big honor to be on the Crossing Broadcast. I just hope to be able to provide something coherent uh, as I feel like I'm finally hitting a wall. Uh, almost 24 hours after one of the greatest games I've ever witnessed, ever. That hey, was making, the, the greatest game. You're what making game your Super was. Bowl debut. You're making your episode on the on the post-Super Bowl show debut. Or your debut. Yeah, yeah I can't even string together sentences. There was the debut. You, uh, but... Yes, you were on last week and we lost the audio. So you're like probably faintly in the background <laughs> in a few spots in the show from last week. Uh, that's right. If you but do that's the, okay. If you do the podcast, but nobody hears your audio, did you really do the podcast? Uh, but no, nah, man, it's like I, I think it's finally starting to hit me now. You know, I walked to the uh, shitty gas station down the street uh, this morning when I finally came up for air and I got the newspapers and I did hold that, th- that whole thing. And I was like, wow, this is like real, you know, just maybe seeing it in like a tangible physical kind of form. But it was just like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's probably going to hit until the parade on Thursday. I mean, can you imagine what that thing is going to be like? It's, it's almost surreal. Like I, I still can't even, I look on ESPN.com today and it's like, well, who's favored for next year? What are the power rankings for next year? Who gives a flying shit, man? Let's just, uh, Let's give the Eagles some credit where it's due, you know. I think it really settled in for me. Uh, it, it definitely has not settled in. I shouldn't use that phrase. But last night, it, same deal. I like just I had the news on till sometime around three and was slinging stuff up there and um, seeing the uh, what is it? The you know this, Kevin? The Chirons? Do I have that yeah, right? Yeah, that's what they're called. The lower yeah. third. Lower third. Uh, yeah. Seeing the Chirons said Eagles Super Bowl champions and Eagles win the Super Bowl. Uh, and then seeing it today on ESPN and on Comcast when the plane landed, like that's where it's striking me the most. Because I guess like I'm my head's sort of in the weeds and like just refreshing Twitter and um, looking at videos and tweets and stuff from the locker room and all that is surreal. And like seeing Jeffrey Lurie holding up the Lombardi Trophy is uh, is not it's not a pathway my brain has developed yet to comprehend. Um, <laughs> I I see what's happening, but it's slowly that pathway is being built as we speak but seeing it on the screen seeing that eagles super bowl champions on the bottom of the screen that is though that is the moment where it's like wow uh i know when you see them get off the plane today holding the trophy and they walk over to the fence uh where all the fans are lined up on the fence i mean what a what a scene that was you know but it was just strange i mean like even after last night when they won it i was expected more of more of like the Jason Kelsey kind of raw emotion responses. And it wasn't, it really wasn't that it was a lot of tempered kind of like business as usual kind of stuff. You know, they carried that mentality from the beginning of the season all the way through the end of the season. It was just, I don't know. It just seemed subdued for some reason, but I think that's finally going to overflow on Thursday. I think when it finally catches up to everybody and hits everybody that, wow, this actually happened. It was something that we that we hit on Friday as well was, you know, you don't want to see this team that's been this emotional, uh, not an emotional roller coaster, but they've they've been an emotional, outgoing, extroverted group of humans 
playing this beautiful game of football, not the beautiful game. Um, but the way that they have shown personality through the entire season, you know, we we had said going into it that it, it's so important for them to maintain that identity. It's important for them to maintain a gutsy play calling. It's it They need to be who they are. And that game Sunday, if at any point there was anyone wondering if the uh, the play calling and if the players themselves were going to be, you know, feeling it, uh, it became apparent very early in the game that Doug was in it to win it. Um, I got hit with this really weird kind of feeling, um, you know, that when the Eagles played in the Super Bowl in 2015, I was 14 years old, and five. What? I said 2005. Yeah. You said 2015. Hey, whatever. Oh yeah, my bad. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. Close enough. Well, I played Madden in 2015. They were in the Super Bowl then, but in 2005, I was I was 14, and it was almost that same length of time to see them play in a Super Bowl again. And it only hit me today when I was walking around my school and, you know, you see the kids that are like all everybody's in green with the exception of a few Patriots fans, which was strange and Giants fans who were wearing their Beckham Jersey and touting the fact that they thought the Giants had the best commercial. Yeah. Um, hey, you gotta was win the back page was the back page of the New York Daily News. You know what? I, kinship um, with the Giants. Kinship with the Giants right now for being both the NFC East teams uh, to face the Patriots during their run in the Super Bowl uh, have have beat them. Okay? So yeah, I feel I feel like Nick Foles and Eli Manning should hug, and then we should beat the ever living shit out of them. You know what was kind of was kind of strange? Like uh, Mike Missanelli actually said something really interesting that that made a lot of sense to me in his open today, and that was the fact that. And I've, I think I've said this before in Slack chat when we're just sort of talking about the Eagles. But when you're when you're in the business, and like when I worked in TV, you know, for the last eight or nine years or whatever it was, you just like you're a fan. You grow up as a fan of the team, obviously. You know, I grew up out in the suburbs. I've been an Eagles fan my entire life. But when it becomes your job, uh, you know, and you write about it, and I've edit highlights with Beasley Reese and do all that stuff for however many years it was, like your fandom starts to kind of go away. Um, eventually, you know, it's not that you don't want the team to win. It's not that you're not connected to them, but the emotion just isn't what it, what it used to be. I think because, you know, Sunday is work for me. You know, I watch the games and I take notes when I watch the games, and I write things down. I'm thinking about what highlights I have to edit and what I'm going to show on TV and stuff like that. Um, but last night, like Miss Anelli was saying that like feeling came back to him for the first time in a long time. You know, I, I literally jumped up out of my seat uh, after the strip sack at the end of the game. And, and that was the, the most I've felt to just sort of throw in away the laptop and the, the notes and the, the pen and all that stuff and just acting like a fan again, you know, and like trying to rekindle that, that feeling from 2003 and 2004 and 2005 and all those great teams in the past. And it was just strange, man. It was nice to kind of have that come back around again because it's, uh, you look at things differently when you're kind of in the business and you do what we do. But um, I mean, that's what it did for me. I mean, I never thought I'd get that feeling back again, but that's what happened last night. I faced yeah. this this like really weird paradigm shift in my fandom during that game. Um, when when the Eagles finally gave up that touchdown to go down 33-32, um, it seemed like everybody on Twitter, it seemed like everybody in our Slack chat at least, had given up. Mm-hmm. And, and I have been notoriously negative, I guess. I would consider it a realist. Many called it negative. Um, there was something about the way that this game had played out. And it felt like they deserved to win it. And in Slack and on Twitter, I said, everybody just needs to breathe. They're a touchdown and a two-point conversion away from this being a real thing. And everybody at the party I was at, everybody was ready to give up. I mean, 
I knew that the defense hadn't made a big play all night. I knew that they weren't able to stop Brady. He ends up going over 500 yards passing for the game um, in a game where they cr- absolutely crushed the previous Super Bowl high in combined yards by by two offenses. Um, but man, it got to a point last night where I got this like weird feeling, and I guess it's what you would call positivity. And I just felt like it was going to happen. I felt like at some point, you know, for as much as the Eagles' defense couldn't get a stop on Brady, the same way that that the thing that we talked about at Carlino's, uh, the, you know, the death by 500 cuts, all those underneath routes, everything that we thought could happen did happen. The Patriots' defense wasn't stopping Nick Foles. They weren't stopping Jai. They certainly weren't stopping Corey Clement. And it just felt like at some point they're going to have to get a turnover. And when they do, they're going to be able to get the lead and to really put this game potentially out of reach. And I said to everyone in the room, the special teams came up with multiple big plays. The offense was dynamic. The play calling was gutsy. And everything worked. All we needed was one play by the defense. One stop or or one turnover was going to change the entire game. And we got it. And Nick Foles, to his credit, and that offense, they put their foot on the Patriots' throat. And Jake Elliott, who Phil Kydell once said we needed to get rid of to get a veteran <laughs> kicker in because we couldn't trust him in the playoffs, goes out and I think two times in that game uh, breaks the previous rookie-length record for field goals made in a Super Bowl. It was an incredible effort, just all around. Yeah, uh, you're... you're- your fandom and positivity is, uh, you know, it's interesting because I had a moment of creeping dread. Like to me, uh, and Kevin, what you said about like the fandom thing, doing this for a living now for for eight years, it's it hasn't worn away. I guess it takes a little something out of the fandom because you, you know, kind of peek behind the curtain sometimes, but also because it's work and um, when something great happens, it's, it's it's a to do it sets off a to do list right yeah, yeah. so like you know I've try I try and get into other things for a while I got into like EPL soccer because that was a way to enjoy sports without feeling like I had to do something right um you know like so whatever I'm in you know like you know you guys know right now I'm in the bourbon like for me that's a distraction you know sports <laughs> are no longer a distraction it's like something the Super Bowl happens and you know I, I want to grab my laptop right after the game but. Um, it hasn't like chipped away at fandom, but what it has done is it's raised the bar to what excites you, you know, like it's very tough to really get up for even like a Sunday night football win against the Cowboys while it's great and fun and exciting, you know, that those types of games are like, well, not a lot of sleep tonight, up early the next morning. We're writing about it the next day. We're talking about it the next day. And it just, it kind of sets off like all these other chain of events that while you're excited, like they kind of begin to dominate, but there's it, so you're still the phantom, but the, the the bar gets sets higher. And like when you hit the playoffs in the NFL, you've you've now stepped over that bar. And every win, you know, you're yeah. I, I feel the same way I did ten years ago. And last night, like same deal. I felt that was so stressful. That was for me the most stressful sporting event I've ever watched. Um, it was worse than the Villanova championship game a couple of years ago. It was worse than any of the World <laughs> Series games. And I said this to my to my dad, and you know, this is getting back to your point, Russ. I was like, you know, there's game sevens in other sports, um, you know, but there's usually like a 48 hour wait before you play them. The same thing, like the Nova Championship, you know, the NCAA National Championships, one game, but it's 48 hours. You know, you barely have time to really hype it up. Um, 
you know, the Super Bowl, though, is and when the Phillies won, it was 48 hours and they had a three games to one lead and they were going to play a three inning game. And it was just a totally different experience. It was like more of an anticipation for what you really expected was going to be a parade. Just when when and how is it going to happen sort of thing. I hope it happens at home. Um, this is different. This is two weeks of sheer buildup. It's one game for all the marbles. It's by yesterday afternoon. It's Sunday. It's not even like you're at work. You're working. You can distract yourself. It's Sunday. You're sitting around and you're just a ball of nerves by the time the game starts. And to me, the worst way that game could have played out in terms of like stress level is exactly how it played out. If they were tied or seesawing or trailing, like if they're trailing in the back of your head, there's that thought, Okay, here we go again. We're going to lose. Um, you know, we're, we're just going to come up short. But you're like, as the game's going on, you're like buffering those thoughts in your head and you're you're preparing yourself for for the loss. Or even if it's tied, you're probably like, oh, fuck, like, you know, Tom Brady's going to figure out a way and you're, you're preparing yourself. But I thought all week, I was like, oh, God, the, 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 that 10-point lead range is going to be so damn stressful. And this was in the SB Nation sim, which itself stretched me out watching it on Friday. <laughs> there was like eight lead changes and a game-winning field goal. I, I, was get, I got stressed out watching that, and then it, it screwed me up all weekend. But that 10-point lead was so nerve-wracking because you knew it was right there, but you just knew there was this tidal wave of, of Tom Brady Super Bowl mystique just going to be coming down your throats. Bad phrasing. You get it. That, yeah, um, sure. no, yeah. I was going to say, let, just... it, let, let them finish there. Um, last part, last part. Yeah, yeah. When they took the lead, I, you know, going back to Russ's thing, I was confident all game. I was confident all week. Like, this team deserved to be there. They were better. There were no flukes. They continuously impressed. You know, the way they came out with the Meek Mill, like, they're just. They're just one of those teams. You're like, this team's gonna kick. They they want to kick everybody's ass, and they are not tight, and they are loose. And I felt good. And then, like you know, the t- the ten point lead, and you're like, all right, that's fine. They're still matching them. Keep it two scores. Two scores is fine. Like if if the Patriots can't stop us, no matter how many they score, you know, we're gonna win here. We 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 are, we're out ahead. But then when they take the lead in the fourth quarter, you're like, well, uh, like I had the sense. I was like, there's there's just no way now because now. All the thing, all those cliches about it's not Nick Foles versus Tom Brady. The minute the Patriots took the lead, it became, in a way, Nick Foles versus Tom Brady because you know the Eagles are no longer stopping Brady. Our offense and Nick Foles are going to have to win this game. And then they put together that unbelievable seven-plus-minute drive, take the clock down. They couldn't quite get it under two minutes, which really would have you know, put them in the driver's seat for, for winning the game right there and then. But then, you know, they, get the, they get the touchdown. The calls go their way, and then the strip sack. Like so, I had that creeping sense of dread, Russ. I like it was positive right up until that moment. I'm just expecting, expecting Brady to do something. And to your point, Kevin, the fumble that to me was the most exciting. That was mm-hmm. the moment I felt like, holy shit, we won. Like when you knew Fault, it was like, there. Yeah, yeah. You're like, holy shit, we had it. That's the only way they were stopping him. There's no way he wasn't marching down the field, short of. Um, yeah, he. They weren't going three or four and out. Like it was either going to have to be an interception or a fumble to stop them, and it happened. Un, like that was the moment you're like, they're going to win, and yeah. they still almost came back and and miraculously tied it. I mean that that would that hail mary was scary. <laughs> Why the replays on that? If that bounces in another direction, it's caught by uh, I guess it was Amendola. Amendola. It was Amendola, yeah. and I think Hogan were. Di- there were two yeah. guys within two yards and then i think amandola was eventually the guy that dove into the end zone 
to uh, recover it. Well, and you see like the celebration too after that was kind of muted too because I think it didn't really dawn on everybody right away, at least the guys on the field, like, wow, that's it. Like, we won. We won the Super Bowl, you know? And even like in our house, you guys- we, were, we were just sort of like – Oh shit! Wow, that's it. You know, because you're you're just waiting for the final friggin' second to tick off the clock. You know, and that's like just what you've grown accustomed to as an Eagles fan. Like you made the point earlier, Kyle, about you know the enjoyment of watching the games and like you know a, a, a win over the Cowboys or something, right? But it's always with the Eagles. It was always you know with that extra thing that was paired with it, that modifier that came with every single win. Like, is this the year? Are they finally good enough to win it all? Can they win the Super Bowl? So. It wasn't like you're watching the regular season always with that in the back of your mind. And it wasn't just, hey, let's enjoy an amazing 28 to 23 win over the Carolina Panthers on a Thursday night when the refs call 10 penalties against them, right? Like you you want to enjoy that and you do try to enjoy that in a vacuum, but it's always then paired with this idea of, wow, is this going to be it? Can they finally get over the hump? Because that was the only thing that mattered to Philadelphia Eagles fans and Philadelphia sports fans in general. So I think now looking forward, Next year, when you watch the games, you're just going to have that albatross out from 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 over your shoulders. You know, it's just going to be that weight off your shoulders. The elephant is no longer in the room. You know, that cowboy fan is no longer going to be able to chide you for never winning the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, the Giants fans are going to have to take a backseat. The Redskins fans too. You know, and you're just going to be able to sit there and enjoy this team, which would be a very very good team for years to come, without always having to think along those lines. I can just watch the game enjoy the game whatever the result is and know that shit they did win it they did finally win that one you know and that's the most important thing to me because you take away that whole other side thing that's always in the back of your mind it's no longer in the back of your mind anymore and i and remember also- the, the, so the 2009 phillies like for me that season was so much fun because you had like you said you had it um Yes, you had the yeah. albatross out of the way, and it was just fun. You're like, well, our team is good. These guys and I'm going to enjoy awesome. this season. Yeah. That yeah. regular season was so much fun. I remember driving to the game, like shouting in my car, "I'm going to see the world fucking champions!" Literally to nobody but myself, <laughs> which is weird, but it's fun. Like you know, and that lasts until they lose again in the playoffs, whenever that is, and and you know, then you're back to square one. But no, well, you- I was going to say before, like the only when you guys are talking about the dread, so the dread that that creeped in. I think it was at the end of the first half. Uh, it was when I, I had that bad feeling that Brady was going to run down the clock. They were going to get a touchdown to end the half, and then they were going to get the ball back and, and go right back down, score a touchdown. I think he'd be down five points to start the second half before you even get the ball into Nick Foles' hand. And the the dread that I felt in that moment reminded me of, of like what the 2011 Game 5 matchup between uh, Halliday and Carpenter felt like. When you're just waiting for that that one moment to to come through where you needed your team to just have that that one big moment like I, I had thought that they might get that defensive turnover of of some sort of forced fumble and interception or something to end the half but the dread started creeping in of oh my god like they might not actually be able to get the stop and then if they start the second half and if they do give up a, a touchdown to start the second half then they are behind and then Foles goes out and you get a three and out then what happens it was that kind of dread that was the only thing I could compare it to. But then there were things that like definitely offset. It was, there were things that happened in that game that do not happen for Philadelphia teams. First of all, we knew going into it that this refereeing crew, uh, the sideline judges, and uh, I think a few of the other refs were not typically part of whatever the ref's name. Uh, Gene Steratore. Yeah, him. I like to call him Smiley. <laughs> Every time there's a penalty, 
dude liked to smile. I mean, like if they had a prop bet over under on how many times Gene was going to smile, that would have been great. <laughs> uh, seriously, dude smiles so much. He must have had really great dental work done. Um, but there were there were two calls that we like there were a few things like one we knew that they weren't going to call a lot of pass interference which could in fact benefit the Eagles and I would say that if you're if you're fair about it Eagles cornerbacks got away with a few holds there were a few holds and early chips on Gronkowski yeah. which was fine yep. and I think I think that went the other way as well there were a couple times I think it was it was maybe on the the two point conversion and then they had run another fade I think on an attempt for a touchdown where it looked like Alshon had really initiated the contact and people were really upset because he's fading back. And it looked like he got shoved down and people were asking for the call. And I'm like, well, you know, you've definitely gotten away with a few on Gronk. I think he got away with a few on White. Um, but two touchdowns go to review. And I know that every play is reviewed. But if if you were an Eagles fan and you watched that Corey Clement play and you weren't expecting them to call it back on the basis that that ball, he, he shuffled it a little bit in his hand and that left foot came down and it looked like the white cleat and that white stripe in the back of the end zone uh, had touched. If you didn't have that fear and dread in your heart, you're not a Philadelphia fan. And the second that that got overturned and the second that we had, uh, God, what was the other one? I, I just blanked. Um, no, it was the Zach Ertz catch of the, the game. The Zach, the Zach Ertz yeah. catch. And when it happened, I said, Jesse James. I'm like, what's different? And then you realize that the Jesse James catch he went to the ground with momentum in the process of making the catch. And it was Al Michaels who pointed out all he has to do is complete the catch and make a move, take a couple steps. And you're a runner. If you're a runner, you just have to cross the goal line. And when Collinsworth, I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know why he's still talking about it today, but dude, Ertz makes the catch. He turns three steps, dives, makes a football move by trying to dive over the outstretched arm of a defender to leap into the end zone. I don't know why it takes so long to make that call, and I certainly don't know why it takes your color commentator the better part of 10-15 minutes because, my God, every time there was a break, we had to go back to that play. It was the Clement play for a while they had to go back and review, then it's then it's the Ertz catch. And, and like I, I, I get I get that the that the rules are convoluted. I get that nobody really knows what a catch is. And when I was listening to Mike Lombardi today on the NFL Ringer show, which I only got 10 minutes into, uh, he and whoever he co-hosts with, I wanted to see if he would eat crow and admit that Doug is fantastic. And I didn't hear it in that part. Um, but, you know, the two of those guys said they have a very strong belief that Gene and that crew and uh, the head of officiating said, do not make a call that is going to go down as like one of those all-time awful calls that's going to bring even more focus on the NFL being a screwed up league with screwed up, you know, overly complicated rules. Just make if it looks like a catch, it's a catch. And they finally did it. Well, it's funny, it's funny because all, you know, Goodell admitted that they're going to talk about it this offseason. You know it's going to change and there was this underlying subplot all week is, "Oh god, what if the Super Bowl comes down to one of these plays?" And I remember thinking the other day, I'm like, man, what if we're on, like, oh, the horror, if we're on the wrong end of one of these plays on a rule that's about to, you know, a rule that in two months from now would have allowed us to win the Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Like, what if we're on the wrong end of a bad rule that is about to get changed? And I remember thinking, like, man, what would it take to get for someone to tap Roger Goodell on the shoulder in his box and have him get on that line? with those guys to be like we cannot you know like we are going to reinvent the rule book on the fly now 
that didn't happen, I don't think. But what you just brought up, Russ, is like there's no doubt about it. The Clement one could have been questionable because the ball was moving. But I think the determination they made was that it was moving not because he was bobbling, because he was actually shifting it. And, Kevin, you wrote this today. Yeah. Um, He was shifting it, and he was controlling it. Like it doesn't necessarily – like, you know, I'm controlling a tennis ball if I just toss it between my two hands, even though it's not touching something, you know? And I think that was sort of the determination there. The Ertz one, though, like our living room, and I'll have the Nest Cam footage fully edited tomorrow. I It was like we were in a time warp. Like, we're all shouting at the TV, like, <laughs> what are you guys talking about? Like, Chris Collinsworth, as annoying as he was, what are you talking about? He's he's taking three steps, and it like Michaels was sort of you know getting it, but not really. And the fact that it was taking so long, and then you have Collinsworth piling on top of it, are like, are we missing something? Like, what is the? I couldn't even keep up with Twitter. It was just streaming by. You couldn't even read stuff. But it's like what like it, it was like we were in the twilight zone. No, the diff- like he's, Collinsworth he's is usually good. Like. He's usually he's decent. Just, he and likes like, to just hammer on those points and hammer on those points. And yeah. I guess when you're on the other side of it, it's tough. He's always grading, but he was like, God, to, yeah, like what you said, he kept going back to it. After they moved on and the Patriots had the ball, they went back. You're like, shut up. Like, By the, by the way, can I, I just put it out here. I really like Al Michaels. I've always liked Al Michaels. But if they don't take old Al behind, I do the, behind, behind the barn and – and just do the deed and put Mike Tirico in that seat in the next two years. Uh, the the ending call, I understand that a lot of people, including myself, I have that on video of, of our group standing there thinking with nine seconds left, you're probably going to be able to get a bomb to the to the end zone and then maybe have a second or two left. And it wasn't until the guys were running around and we all really focused on the, on the straight zeros that we realized it was over. But yeah. when you're Al Michaels and, and that play happens and it really sounds like just an inconsequential Hail Mary at the end of the second preseason game, that's an issue. And then finally, after I guess it occurred to him that it was over, then it was kind of like a half-hearted attempt. But man, like, of all the calls, that was why I was so disappointed. I think it was Graham was in the backfield, almost had Brady on the sack. Like, that would have been the moment to end it. That would have been the great way. But, you know, we couldn't have it easy. And unfortunately, we couldn't have that great call from, uh, you know, a guy who has maybe the greatest all-time call in in the miracle. So should we? Can we talk about the Philly special then, which I thought was the greatest play call yes. I've ever seen in the history of football at, at any level that I've ever watched. <laughs> maybe in any sport too, not not just football. But for for Doug Peterson I to, I mean, the thing about this Super Bowl is that it was consistent with everything that they've done all year long. Just gutsy, just ballsy plays, you know, all season long. Um, get some wrong yeah you know I didn't like going for the two-point conversion there and then throwing that you know split four guys out to the right and then throw the fade to Alshon I didn't think that made sense um but you know that Doug doesn't shy away from going right back to the the you know those gamble type of plays you know and he he runs he lines up Corey Clement and Nick Foles in a pistol Nick Foles matriculates to the right taps the right tackle on the rear end Direct you had to get that in because it didn't make the cut last week. I I don't think I didn't catch I didn't catch that. I wanted to just slide it, slide it right in there. Um, yeah. Oh, I got it. What is happening? Wild Wildcat snapped a. You don't remember Clement. matriculate, Russ? At the podcast? 
Yeah, you were smashed. He was that too busy taking taking no, notes it, and I th- playing, no, I think that was crowd and all that stuff. I think that was the moment where I got the the text about the oh, the twins yeah. being. He, right, he dropped the matriculates in that context, yeah. and uh, we remarked on how it was an excellent. I got that from Beasley Reese. Beasley, Beasley Reese used to use that word to describe how uh, Chip Kelly used Riley Cooper, which are two names that I did not think I would use on this podcast tonight. But there you go. So anyway, undrafted free agent rookie Corey Clement. They trust him to take a wildcat's wildcat snap, toss the ball to Trey Burton, who's a backup tight end, and roll your backup quarterback out to the right, sneak him out the back, and throw a touchdown pass to him in the Super Bowl. I mean, you have to have balls of like, uh, not brass, not iron, uh, not steel. What's the what are the Wolverines claws? Titanium. Made out? Titan- oh, adamantium. adamantium. Yeah, adamantium. You have to have balls of adamantium to be able to call that in the Super Bowl, especially at a point where. It was only 15 to 12 at that point, you know, and you could kick a field goal and go up, you know, six, whatever. You know, maybe that had something to do with it, too, because of the missed extra extra point earlier. But to call that when he did, uh, how important was that in the grand scheme of things? Because they couldn't stop the Patriots in the second half, as you, as you mentioned, you know, that play to extend the lead and also the defense making only maybe three plays in this game and two of them happening in the first half. I mean, I think that play in combination with those two defensive stops in the first half was probably the game. And thank God they actually converted that fourth down because that was another Collinsworth thing where he kept going back to it again and again. I can't believe they're going for it. I can't believe they're running this. Are, are they really going to go for it? Well, you should believe. And they went around did you watch, RPO did on you watch yeah, it's, RPO, RPO. Can I, say yeah, something? Like, Can I say something real quick about that? Okay. They identified about five plays last night as RPO that were not RPOs. <laughs> because it's now, because now, I feel like we've had this struggle like all year long. It's not an RPO just because, you know, he – they run it out of the shotgun. He sticks it in the guy's belly and then pulls it out. That's not an RPO. If you watch some of those plays last night, one of the things that gives it away is when the offensive linemen start pass blocking right off the bat, right? Because if they start pass blocking, there's no run option in the play, right? You know, a lot of the time is when you see, you know, defenses in zone and you try to read the linebacker and throw over the top of him. That's RPO. Okay, so they did some of that last night, but Chris Collins, Al Michaels, I don't expect much from, but Chris Collinsworth was a professional player. You know, and he did some Eagles games this year. And if he watched any of any of that or paid attention to any of that or did any film prep or anything like that, he would know that. Um, and he should know that the Jesse James play was completely different than the Zacherts play at the same time. I just felt like it was all boring and tired, and they didn't really do any research or any prep, even even in the earlier playoff games too. Are you accusing him of being the Reggie Miller of NFL color comments? Listen, I know the bar is not very high, but, you know, I'll take, you know, Doris Burke over Reggie Miller and – Merrill Reese over Chris Collinsworth and pre- pretty much anybody over anybody yeah. who's mm-hmm. who's currently on the uh, broadcast right now. But I mean to to see, you know, it's it's funny because it was the same as this Eagle season has been the whole time. Tough calls, you know, gutsy calls, big plays when it mattered, and adversity too. You know, I mean, Russ, I'll give Russ credit. You know, I think Jeff and I were kind of like, well, here we go. You know, it was thirty three to thirty two. Patriots, uh, Patriots got it. You know, it's a shootout, and they're going to lose and. Russ was the most level-headed person on the Slack chat that I could think of. And it never happens. Never. But uh, it happens in the biggest of moments. What you said about the, like them doing that all year. Like our crowd here, uh, you know, it was me, my parents, my in-laws, uh, Dana, obviously, and uh, my brother-in-law. And the, when the first fourth down came up, I'm like, I'm like go for it. You know, you go for it. Because that, this is what they would have done in week five. And I felt like the thing, the one the one, the worst game Doug had this season was against the Seahawks because I felt he was very conservative. You, there was a sense of intimidation in that in that game. 
Um, they didn't challenge that play at the end. There was, you know, there was a lot to nitpick from that one. Oh, that lateral, always hear the lateral play, yeah. <laughs> the lateral play. But they play that game very conservatively. Um, and, I, you know, you always hear, well, you can you could take a lesson from a loss. And sometimes that's, you know, trying to tell yourself it's good luck if a bird shits on you, right? Um, I feel like that, you know, that is one where they definitely did take that lesson. I don't know. I, I haven't heard him talk about it in a press conference. But it was clear last night that there were decisions he made last night that I don't think he would have made in that Seattle game. And, I, like, I wonder if in the back of his head were some regrets not regrets, but, you know, learning points. Like, hey, we, we gave our opponent too much respect in this game, and it actually wound up wound up costing us a game we could have won. And when, when they got into those fourth down situations last night, like, Collinsworth was shocked. Um, you know, I think some of the people in my living room were shocked, but I remember I was saying out loud before they even decided, because the one point they lined up and then they called the timeout, was that that was the that touchdown, was before right? The t- yeah, that was before the Philly yeah. special, yeah. Right. Right, and he and he called falls over, and like they're like, all right, well they were trying to get him all sides, they're going to kick. I'm like, no, no, they're they're going for it. They they just want to take a beat here and figure out exactly what they want to do. And you know, how often do you see a coach line up, hut hut? You know, if, unless they have like a, an absolute matchup they want, they'll try and draw them all sides, call a timeout, and kick the field goal. And you know, but no, not Doug. And you see him point, you know, you see him point to the sheet there. Um, but God, like I was. I, I, I'm looking forward to you guys seeing the Nest Cam because my I am stunned. My <laughs> mouth is agape as the play is unve- developing because you're like, oh my god, they're doing a you know a end around like reverse and and then when you see like I just thought they were running it. I'm like, oh this is this is risky, and then you see Foles leaking out, matriculating yes. over the goal oh, line, yes. and you're like, oh my god, they're going to throw it to Foles. Like what? Doug has just uh, been. I mean, if you if you think about it. Kyle, it wasn't really that long that, you know, you and me and Jimmy Kemsky were going back and forth on Twitter about fourth and eight in the whatever in the Kansas. Was that in the Kansas City game? I can't even remember now. But I think it was the Giants game. Oh, the, oh, the Giants the game. Giants okay, game. right. And yeah. I mean, think about like the stuff that we were talking about. Early, fourth, early. fourth dumb and eight is not a headline that aged well. Fourth, in my end. <laughs> fourth dumb and eight. Yeah, dumb and dumber. Well, you got one of those, right? Because Ben, ben McAdoo got fired, but... Um, I, I have a lot of things that have not aged well. Fourth dominated. Well, we should go. No, we should do a post out of that. We should go back and go through all the takeaways and all the topics that we wrote about and say, wow, that seems kind of weird now. Or can you imagine that we were writing about this, you know, three months ago, right? I mean, I think about after the Kansas. I have that. I have that post uh, ready to hit publish right now. What? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. No, yeah, just right. right. You should, Russ, you should do because I I would do this to myself, and I I will I will do this to myself. Um, sometimes better if it comes from someone else, but like I, I've. <laughs> a lot of bad, a lot of bad eagle steaks over the last year, and um, I mean, if it, if it was humane to eat crow, I would I would find some and cook it and, and literally. But eat not it. even listen, um, like not C- CB Armageddon initiated. Yeah. You could eat Dude, the crow, this, but this don't. could be a parade. This could be a parade activity sponsored Ooh. by Amerigas. Yeah, you can eat actually. The, let's eat take the a crow. second to thank Amerigas. Oh, you're gonna do that? Hold right? on. Yeah, yeah. So let's take a second to thank Amerigas, uh, Kevin. As you might know, they are the nation's number one propane provider. Mm-hmm. They're available at how many locations? 55,000. 55,000 locations. Locally at Home Depot and 7-Eleven. They want to power every tailgate. Football season is over. They just want to power your fucking Super Bowl celebration parties. (laughs) Bring a tailgate. Bring a canister, a tank. I guess it's a tank. A tank of propane on Broad Street. Set up your grill. Just 
set up your grill now because you have 48 hours. Mark your territory. Uh, Tory Smith just tweeted that he's going to be he's going to buy the biggest, loudest Bluetooth uh, speaker blast Meek Mill down broad. Set up right there so you can hear Tory Smith go by blasting dreams and nightmares, which I just did while cooking Hello Fresh. You that you you never feel more hard assed than cutting vegetables or blasting a little <laughs> dreams and nightmares jumping around. Um, no joke that that you really happened. Really, but you and Raph, bring you your, can't sound whiter if you try. bring your tank. Bring your tank out to Broad Street. Uh, they want to power at all of your celebrations um, we're also doing a contest go to crossingbroad.com backslash amerigas uh enter your name and your zip uh, not even your zip code your name your email and you'll be entered to win 500 worth of tailgating um gear you're going to get a portable grill you're going to get a hose to hook it all up you're going to get a portable heat lamp uh and you're going to get two tailgating chairs with sunshade and you're going to get 200 gift card to the crossing broad store um, all that for just going to crossingbroad.com backslash Amerigas. Also, take the most glorious, ridiculous picture of the tank that you can, tweet it, or post it on Instagram using the hashtag showyourtank. Um, this is the show your tank campaign. So show your tanks. Show your tanks to the Eagles as they go by. Just don't lift up take lift lift don't up both take of your tanks. tanks. If, don't it, take your tank. No joke. We'll not about get the through, contest. It this won't has get nothing, through security. This has nothing to do don't, with Amerigas. Uh, if you're if you are able to get a picture of yourself holding up in a uh, having a <laughs> tank on Broad Street, I per, I will just give you a hundred dollars to the store. <laughs> no contest. You need a picture of you with an Amerigas Amer tank on Broad Street for the parade. I'll just get I'll just give out hundred dollar gift cards to anyone who could do that. No contest well, needed. That hundred dollars will go a long way as they uh, face possible what planning terroristic charges for uh, mm. bringing a an, a propane tank to a group of what over a two three four million people yep tory sign my tank well i was gonna say <laughs> that hundred dollars is really gonna get them out of jail kyle eat, well, yeah, way to go eating crow America. eating crow is one thing but if you're eating horse shit like the guy was last night <laughs> that's another thing that, but at least my he didn't favorite punch the horse celebration the moment yeah my favorite celebration moment bar none the the, the awning was cool it'll be yeah. interesting to see if it's back by the time we're at the ritz uh on on thursday by the way because the date of this kept moving and we were convinced it was wednesday and it was going i was convinced it was tuesday and then bob and russ you were right you guys were right that it was wednesday and we accurately reported that and then the weather impacts everything and then they move it to thursday and so long story short we have three nights at the ritz this week which is very expensive <laughs> but it is significantly easier to swallow because the eagles won and that is uh, very good for business so it's okay can you give us a, um, a uh, an estimate of how much a room at the Ritz uh, cost, uh, <laughs> the rooms uh, you know I you know it's funny the first two nights we got early before they went up so uh, we were we were like 600 a night for the first two nights but by the time we added the third night um, I think this no so we had Monday and Tuesday originally Monday and Tuesday night so we got it at 619 a night and then we had to move it because we, we thought the parade was going to be Wednesday so we you want it the night before and night after so you don't get caught in this check-in check-out window so then we moved it to Tuesday Wednesday but by that point last week it had the price had shifted so we got Tuesday maybe still at the same price but Wednesday it's like 750 a night um, and then we, we just, we just straight up today because there was uncertainty and like, we didn't want to mess with it. They won. Like we just added a third night. So, uh, we're up to like, like $700 a night average for three <laughs> nights. 
plus tax uh, plus taxes and fees which is like a hundred dollars a night um i think that the ritz really should have been they should have been offering rooms for like two hundred dollars and then donated the proceeds to uh quality inn and motel six there you go there you go but uh yeah no but the so i don't know if the awning will be there but the horse shit guy my favorite yeah. my favorite I, what, is it really what, that bad what goes through like his I, head I, when I, he I does that is he saying Yo, bro, I'm, watch me eat this horse shit, man. I just keep thinking of the scene. Uh, well, you know, even when the horse punching stories were coming out, I don't. I kept thinking of the scene in Half Baked, where uh, Kenny feeds the horse, um, and he ends up going to jail because the horse falls over and dies. And that's the whole premise <laughs> of the movie. Have you seen Half Baked? I. I haven't oh. for maybe a while. I think I did in college. Oh, okay. I'm sure Adam has. It's, Adam's uh, thing, yeah, it's 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 interesting, but uh, yeah, I, I found the I found that celebration to be unique. You could say that I, for sure. You know, I keep picturing the horse in the background, the horse that was punched, like as a mea culpa, like no, get down and eat my shit, nay, nay, <laughs> eat it, nay. <laughs> like sort of like the the horse, like Why you know, horse? a little retribution oh, on the horse's part. All right, let's get it back to the Eagles here. Yeah. Uh, a point. So when you guys were talking, well, I guess we all kind of touched on this about Doug's play calling and why it was so important for them to continue to for for Doug to be Big Balls Doug. All you have to do is go back a year ago and learn from the mistakes that Kyle Shanahan made. Uh, if you remember, Kyle Shanahan had called a pretty aggressive game. They they got what was it, a twenty three point lead, uh, and then they took the foot off the gas. They went into a very very uh, conservative play calling. And it obviously came back to bite them. But they and, didn't run during that. That was the weird thing. They they they, yep. they just got. I don't even. Uh, I agree. I I'm sorry. I'm not trying to take over your point. I don't no, think it was no, so no. much they got overly conservative as they just like they they just. It was just stupid. Sphincters. Like it was it was it was stupid play calling, and it also just. It went counter to everything that was successful. So that was yes. like where we're like Doug in the first half. You know, made some gutsy calls, but in the second half, like the, I think there were only two moments in the game where I was frustrated. One was on, uh, I think Kevin had already mentioned it was the the fade that they threw to the left side of the end zone. I think it was the, the two, two point, point conversion. conversion. Yeah, yeah. And like that was stupid because that was Julio Jones to the opposite side. That was the play that you shut down essentially, except it wasn't as much of a rollout. But like everybody knew when you motioned three guys out, or was it four guys out to the right side of the line? and you had Alshon on an island off to the left, you knew that's where it was going to go. That was the only play call that I thought was stupid. And the only mistake that I thought Nick made on the night was it was a third down play. It was the one that I think led to the only punt of the game where he rolled out to his right, tried to throw it on the run. Maybe it was to Tori. I forget now. Um, but like looking back at it, all he had to do was look to the sideline, and, and he probably could have picked up ten to twelve oh, yards. Oh, if he could have ran and kept that drive line. Yeah, his, like uh, he definitely yeah. could have. He had even even with his lack of of overall speed, he would have gotten there, or it would have at least gotten to like a fourth and one. And and honestly, like in the grand scheme of things, if those are the only two moments that you look back on and say, man, you know, a different play call on that two point conversion, or like. Like yeah, Kevin, you said like I, I I was in the same camp as you. I didn't think that you needed to go for two yeah. as early as they did. Um, you know, between that and and that one Foles play, they played about as close to a perfect game offensively as they no they really they could have. And even special teams, we talked about ad nauseum. I think at, at this point, yeah. Kyle especially that it, he expected Kenyon Barner to have you know that game changing fumble, 
and yeah. special teams had one of their best games of the they year. Were steady, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was the well, best was they only had one, since and, the three blocked. Yeah, and there was only one the three punt, kicks and There punts. was only one punt in the entire game. I mean, that's ridiculous when you think about it. And Goskowski, you know, they had the bad snap where he clanked one off the post. Um, I almost put it through on know, that double that pump. Like, the double pump that was wild, was strange. Yeah, um, you know the other the only other play call I didn't like from Doug was it was a third down. Uh, I can't remember if it was the second quarter, or the third quarter, and they had Nelson Aguilar, and they kind of started moving the entire offense to the left, and then they tried to just sort of jerk him back over to the right and hit him in the flat. Um, that was a third, I think. Yeah, yeah. but I don't, I don't know if Van Noy or somebody read that or blew that up or if it was Harrison or somebody like that. But but otherwise, no, I mean, they were aggressive the whole time. Defensively, I mean, it was strange. They came out and they put uh, Malcolm Jenkins on James White, uh, which was interesting because I thought Jenkins was going to be matched up on Gronk the whole game. And uh, to his credit, I mean, James White didn't do anything. To Jenkins' credit, James White didn't do anything in this game. He had two – he ran the ball pretty well, and he had that one touchdown run where nobody tackled him. But uh, he only had two catches for 21 yards. But, you know, it was everything that we wrote about and everything we identified this week on the site. You know, it was no huddle. You know, it was tempo. Um, you know, it was not getting any pressure on Brady. Uh, you know, defensively, I mean, I think they are pretty disappointing. But the three plays that they made, obviously the strip sack at the end of the game, uh, the second one was the McLeod power bomb on, that was incredible. on uh, Brandon Cooks. Yeah, and actually, you know, if you want to throw like a three and a half in here, the the hit that Malcolm Jenkins put on him that put him out of took him out of the game, um, that was huge too because that took another key receiver out of it. And your matchups were a little bit easier. Um, and then the third one, I think, was the fourth. And I think it was fourth and five or something like that in the first half where the Patriots didn't convert. And Russ, you mentioned it earlier that there was some – they let him get away with some some stuff that could have been called pass interference, I think, in the first half. And Gronk was complaining a couple times in the first half where he thought he got touched or held on some plays. But I think those are the three keys was that stop on third down, uh, the power bomb, and then the fourth and, f- and five they didn't convert or fourth and whatever. And then it was a strip sack at the end of the game. And, and those three things probably ended up being the difference. You know, the Patriots not being able to execute and, and finish a couple of those drives in the first half was probably probably lost them the Super Bowl. Yeah, Can I you – know, re- really quick, I just put this in Slack. Maybe I missed this in the course of the day. Did we – did we talk about or have have we slacked about the guy who got the Philly special as a tattoo on his forearm? <laughs> We so, we did the uh, post on that, yeah. Okay, yeah. All right, then my bad cuz I well, just saw him tweet at it tweet at us again. So well, let me let me let me tell you this. Uh, did he tweet at us or just uh or... he tweeted it out and he mentioned Crossing Broad. Yeah, okay. So nj.com yes. Crossing Broad Yahoo NFL Total Access CBS3 and tomorrow Fox Morning Show. It, I did this for me for my friends. Like that's intense. It's funny. I was just looking at that as we were we were talking here. Uh, I actually know this guy a little bit. Um, him and his girlfriend uh, were Temple students a few years ago, and they planned a trip to D.C. Uh, for the Phillies. Got to get my Phillies Nationals game straight here. Uh, it was a Phillies National game. They planned a trip, and we partnered with them, promoted the trip, and my Dana and I, uh, we weren't married yet, but we went with them, and you know, we were late 20s and kind of out of the partying mode, and they were all college kids, full-on party busing their way down to D.C., and it was uh, – it was a little rough for us, but uh, I, I actually know him a little bit. Uh, great guy, r- real serious fan. You know, I think I've been following him on Twitter for a little bit and, and all that. Um, so 
first of all, it's awesome. And I believed him when he said it was real. If there was anybody else, I would have doubted them. But I, you know, kind of know the guy and I know he wasn't bullshitting. Second off, um, I'm 99% certain that um, he actually used our t-shirt design as a template for the uh, tattoo, which just warms, warms my heart <laughs> immensely. Because um, there's a couple of telltale signs here. One is the, I actually drew this uh, on a sheet of paper at 2 a.m. last night and sent it to the designer this morning and he turned it into artwork. And I made a few, not mis- uh, not mistakes, but like little quirks uh, where you see the, I forget who was the other tight end on the field coming across to block behind the line. Um, the way to graphically express that was to kind of have his block stop between the center and the right guard. Um, which is more or less what happened, but like it was the only way to kind of draw out the image, and that's exactly how it appears on his arm. So I'm, I'm like ninety percent certain <laughs> here he's using my two a.m. stencil as a permanent marker on his left wrist, which um, I that is that's seriously one of the coolest things. I was just on, looking. On back. Either way, it's cool. But I was looking back sure at uh, one of the. I just pulled up the takeaways that I did from the Kansas City game in week two, and uh, let me just read you something real quick that I wrote in there. Uh, at the half, Darren Sproles had run the ball seven times for 37 yards. Wendell Smallwood, remember him, rushed for negative two, <laughs> rushed for negative two yards in one carry while Legarrette Blunt had a one-yard gain nullified uh, on a Jason Kelsey holding call, and that was it. That was his only rushing attempt. Uh, he didn't make it onto the stat sheet because of the penalty. Uh, Doug ran uh, threw the ball like 47 times in that game and passed it like and. Uh, ran it like 17 times i mean can you, can you even believe that like there was a there was a game earlier this year where they had a 75 to 25 pass run split and like garrett blunt didn't even run the ball once you know it was wiped off wiped yeah. off the statue i mean you we could go back and find like all these like ridiculous things in the early part of the season and then look at where they are now and look at how they finish and just like the the non-stop like cumulative growth of this team is just i mean it's like phenomenal you can't you're gonna look back at this in five to ten years and it's gonna you know, my stories might not age that well, but the team and their progress will will age very, very well. And that was a game that I think we had actually called them onto the carpet. That I think that was one of the games that Kyle was his most voracious uh, in the aftermath was just the fact that like that was the ultimate Andy Reid game. It, it was the Andy Reid call breakdown. Like it was everything that we had always feared Doug being. Mm-hmm. And and look, there have been so many times. Uh, in this season, and especially I think the Super Bowl, and and now thinking back to this progression, where Doug Peterson is everything that I thought Chip Kelly was supposed to be. Yeah, the gutsy play calls, the play design, the building an offensive scheme that that actually fits your players and not the other way around. That was what I thought Chip was going to bring, and he never did. He got rid of his best players to try to get guys who could fit his scheme. And Doug, to his credit, over the course of a season, evolved. He did exactly what you would expect or hope any NFL coach would do. He modified his game plan, and they talked about it, I don't know, four times on the telecast in the Super Bowl, about how he, you know, Doug went back, reworked or retooled, changed things in the playbook to kind of go back to that RPO set that Foles was so successful with in that 27-touchdown-two-interception season with Chip. And, and he fit a game plan to the guys that he had. And and I, I don't remember what point it was in the season where he started getting closer to a 50-50 split and even then a 60-40 run split. But once he realized that he had legitimate running backs 
and an offensive line that we went into the season saying was probably a weak spot, and especially once Peters went down, we thought was a weak spot. You know, before we saw the emergence and the the massive growth growth and development of Halapula Vadi Vaitai, um, and even Stefan Wisniewski, and and guys like Brandon Brooks being able to you know stay out of his own head and and you know get his mind cleared. Uh, guys like Nelson Aguilar being able to also get out of his own head and rebound for what might be one of the all-time great rebound seasons for a Philadelphia athlete ever, at least that I can think of, where you come from where he was last year and how we all wanted him cut. Even in the offseason, we thought there was no reason to keep him when you signed a guy like Torrey Smith to come in and blow the top off the, uh, the defense. You know, Doug has been able and was able, and I would imagine is going to continue to be able to adapt everything that he does to his players and when you watch these guys in post game uh post game speeches especially late in the season and through the postseason you know i think a lot of us had questioned at some point do they think he's dopey do they think he's hokey they they love this guy and there there is no you can you can tell when a team and i guess i see this as a teacher you can tell when guys are checked out and they're just going through the motions of hearing the person who's supposed to be in charge talking versus being an active listener. And those guys in those post games uh, were active listeners. They were hanging on his every word. They hang on, on Malcolm Jenkins, every word. It's just, it was, it was a, it was a great thing. And like, you know, that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Doug Peterson has won over this locker room. He won them over at some point, I would assume in the beginning or middle of the season and it's going to, you know, it, it should last for, I don't know, a hell of a long time. As long as he wants to be here, I think he's now kind of written himself into uh, Eagles folklore, and he's kind of given himself that, that nice extension. He might have the best job security uh, Seriously. in professional sports. Um, I mean, if Bill Cower had a job for, what was it, 11, 13 years before he won a Super Bowl, yeah. Doug goes in in year two and breaks a, what was it, 58-year championship drought yeah, dude can stay for a while unless unless he decided to trade Carson Wentz, in which case. No, stop, stop. I'm just stop, kidding. Stop. I'm kidding. I had somebody I look at me like I, I had somebody look at me today and go There's Yo. dumb tweets going around. There's oh my god. Tweets. Somebody seriously looked at me and said, Well, you don't know that Carson Wentz can win you a Super Bowl. <laughs> but you've just seen that Nick Foles can. It's... And at that moment I just realized that natural selection really needs to start playing out. This, no, but this is the only thing I will say about that. Um, it, it, in this, there's this weird – when the Eagle – just humor me for one second here because I'll, I'll make the point as quickly as I can. When the Phillies traded Roy Hall- – uh, I'm sorry, traded Cliff Lee and then traded for Roy Halladay and they kind of switched one with the other, everyone's like, well, upgrade, upgrade. We got Halladay over Lee. And in, in the end, yeah, he turned out to be better and somehow better than Lee was. But the point was like – Lee was so fantastic in those 2009 playoffs that <clears throat> no matter who else you got, could not have been better than Cliff Lee was. They like simply, flat out, could not have been better than Cliff Lee was in the playoffs. So by by trading him and getting Halliday, it was like, okay, well, you, you just you traded one ace for another, but you you didn't actually take a step closer towards winning the whole thing. And, you know, I'm not comparing Nick Foles to the ability level of, of Lee or Halliday or whatever. But my point is that, like, Carson Wentz could not possibly have done any better than Nick Foles over the last two games. Like, simply not uh, 
not possible, right? Um, so it's like, you know, you get back here next year and you're like, oh man, we the sky is the limit. We could do this three more times if we have Carson Wentz, who's even better. And then you think back, you're like, shit. In the in the championship and Super Bowl, we may never we may never see better quarterback play from the Eagles in the playoffs ever again than what Nick Foles just turned in. That's the only. I'm not trying to start a quarterback controversy. I'm just saying, like as it's going to turn out, you would just hope Carson Wentz could be as good as Nick Foles was in the playoffs this year, next year, if and when they get back there. More than um, anything, I hope he actually gets to live that moment. That was I, the thing that I said last yeah. Wednesday that I, I will probably live in constant fear of, is that 08 Phillies team was the least talented yes. team through 2011, and they were the only team, well, two years in a row they got to the World Series, and they... they oh, enough, enough, with the, like, yeah, enough with the sour shit, for real. I mean, the Eagles just won the Super Bowl. We shouldn't even be enter- entertaining these thoughts right now. I mean, they should... No, no, I don't I'm, think he was, just, I think he was making a point no, about no, Wentz it's, being it's like... Just, I want to see Wentz get to that... I, like, I want to see him get to that game. Wentz because has, I know, Wentz I know that he can live up to that moment. Of course, yeah. of course. But we've got, yeah. the, we've yeah. got the next you know yeah. year and a half to yeah, talk yeah. about in the whole offseason. They should talk about building the statue for Doug Peterson right now. I mean the guy who the co- guy who did what what middle part and guy who did what nobody could do for for how long in this town and and think about how often do you find a guy who's a who's a quote unquote players coach but can also coach I mean is Bill Belichick a players coach uh, no probably he's not asshole, you know he but he's is. a really I don't good know. coach ask, ask Malcolm Butler in the yeah. Andy Reid a weed a weed violation that keeps a guy yeah, out of I the don't. Super Bowl who played ninety eight percent of the snaps for your defense. That's, all year. that's not that's not the way you want to go out if you're Belichick, you know. Um, but think about it. I mean, Charlie Manuel, you know, everybody thought he was some some dopey motherfucker coming in here, and uh, look what he did. You know, is he not the same as Doug Peterson? Uh, you know, Andy Reid, the players liked him because he let him do Taco Tuesday or whatever the hell. But you know, he didn't have the the cojones that. <laughs> That Doug Peterson did, you know, think about it. I mean, and Russ, look, I mean, like Jim Curtin, right? You know, really nice guy, players coach, but you know how good. I don't recognize that name. Well, I don't. I don't know. Nor what team do he most coaches. people on the podcast. But you get the point. It's it's a, a players yeah. coach is oftentimes not a great coach at the same time. And Doug to have the killer instinct that he does, and not only that, just to like trust these guys that are that anybody else would see as fringe guys. I mean, the fact the fact that Corey Clement you know, is was getting the snaps that he did in the fourth quarter in games and being trusted to run the clock down. Uh, Trey Burton was given Credit a Credit to Tim Riley, by the way, who writes for us, uh, for writing that don't write off Corey Clement post after the Eagles went out and got a Jai. Prophetic, like, man. I remember hitting publish and thinking, hmm, this seems like a little hometown hokey, but okay, yeah, it's, it's well-written, it's good. And he was just stuck the landing on that one yeah yeah but i mean think about it you know, the fact that you know they trusted those guys to to make those plays and when when big v comes in yeah doug gives them some extra blockers on the left or they're chipping a little bit with the running back or whatever but they took the training wheels off and look how he played in the super bowl you know they went through the goofy left guard rotation and then they finally said well you know what uh Wiz is the guy you know, uh, Wendell Smallwood, who's a serviceable running back. Really, he really is. He's not a bad player. They said, well, you know, we're going to go with these guys and say, is, is that your West Virginia bias? Uh, well, he scored a touchdown this year. He scored an important touchdown this year. I would shout him out at the parade. I would shout out everybody at the parade. I would shout out every single person on this team. I would shout out the Donnell Pumphrey. Denel, I would shout out Denell Pumphrey. I would shout out, you know, every single guy in the laundry department. You know, I mean, <laughs> seriously, we've never done this before. Let's milk the shit out of it. Let's enjoy it. You know, I mean, I can't believe that uh, you know some people are thinking about the future already. When we finally lifted this this curse of however many years off of us, we should this team should be worshipped. You know, 
um, I don't think you're ever going to see another team team like it. You know, and I'm talking about this collective two or three or whatever years it is now. I mean, when you go back and you read through all the stuff that we wrote for the site this year and sort of look at it in a cumulative kind of way and say, wow, they really came a long way. Um, and it's special. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. Someone should put that in a compendium ebook uh, with context of, of a timeline of the season. I mean, it really Quasi is. Think, of, think about here. the stuff that we were talking about, though. I mean, like we were like, well, he's just Andy Reid. We talked about the tuna, the tuna can offense. Yeah. But we all said, these things because, grew too. And because, there was and because even, to them even the early, yeah, even was, early in was. the season, we we said about how. Uh, Andy Reid. Remember the beginning of the season. There was a there was an episode of this podcast where Kyle Adam and I sat here arguing about uh, who was really to blame for the Eagles' shortcomings in that run in the in the early mid two thousands. Was it McNabb's fault or was it Andy Reid's? Mm-hmm. And I think Adam and I both came down on the side of it was more McNabb's fault because Andy Reid had the Chiefs out to what was it a seven and zero start this yeah. year, and then the wheels just totally fell off. But at that point, you you sat back and said, "Man, we used to have Andy. We have Andy Light. He's all of the bad things that 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 you know we cursed Andy for." Except we, th- well, maybe not we, but Kyle thinks is just an idiot. No, but listen, Kyle's Kyle's it, not. He, he's and it's li- it's no. inc- and it's incredible. No, listen, he's not. He, he's right when he says there was merit to a lot of the stuff that people were saying about Doug Peterson. We were watching it on the field. You know, we watched them throw the ball forty-seven times against Kansas City. You know, and give Legarrette Blunt no, you know, carries. So I mean, it's not like we were just making shit up. It's like we had evidence in front of us that said. Doug's not there yet. So when we go back and look at this team, it's not necessarily about us eating crow, right? It's just about admiring the growth of this team in season and the coach in season. I mean, they came a long, long way. You remember that week one game against Washington where we were saying, all right, well, they got the job done, but I don't think anybody was really convinced. And it turned out that that Washington team sucked anyway. But from where they started in week one to where they are now is just so impressive to me. And it's not, it's not even about admitting that we were wrong or, you know, eating crow or anything like that. It's just that this team just grew up along the way. You know, there were reasons for us, legitimate reasons for, for us to say the things that we did. And I think I was sort of a neutral along the way. You know, I just tried to look at it, um, you know, from that mindset, but I don't have anything against anybody that, that criticized Doug or thought that he might not be the guy or, or, you know, said that he's, he's not ready yet, but you know, look at where he is now. So I, I think it's less about the, you know, the eating crow thing. The, um, yeah, no, I, well, I agree because I'm the runner who's got to eat the most. I, I, you know, where I was unfair, I think there was two things, and I, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I think there were legitimate concerns because we did think he might be all of the worst traits of Andy Reid and leaving out the best. Turns out he was the opposite. He's all, he's all of the best traits of Andy Reid without the awfulness, which I, which I want to touch on in a second. Um, but there were legitimate concerns because, you know, the there was no track record. It did feel like a nepotism hire. And we, you know, the little things we saw early on, him, you know, kind of not knowing the rules, knowing little things here and there, some very questionable decisions. There was there was real reason to doubt him. Where I think I was unfair was calling him a dope, you know, without really whatever. And, you know, that's it's fine. You live and learn. And, um, but the, the nepotism doing, hold, 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 hold,
It was an nepotism high. It was. Yeah, it, 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 was, it, it turned it out to be a good thing. Of, it reeked of what the Flyers used. It was right. emotional exactly. intelligence. There's precedent. Man. There's fil- yep. emotional yep. intelligence. Uh, yeah, and, and Jeffrey Lurie was kind of, you know, he, he wasn't like telling people, I told you so last week or the week before or whatever after the Minnesota have. game. But he should have. And it's not, there's no way to, I, I understand what he's saying. It's just a goofy term, which is why we laugh at it. But what he was saying is that he wants people. Load management. He, well, that, yeah, that's a bullshit term too, but. <laughs> We are not. We are not going there. We are not talking about that. That team. I want. No, hold on. I, I want to. I actually want to write a piece tomorrow about the emotional intelligence thing because everything that he, everything that was contained in that emotional intelligence press conference came true in it did. two years. It did. And think because think about unbelievable. It. it wasn't he, that he was saying that that Chip is not intelligent because obviously, and Chip Kelly does deserve some credit here for laying out a blueprint, as Russ said. A lot of these guys that Doug Peterson was able to look at and say, okay, what made Nick Foles successful in 2013? But but Chip just never connected with his players the way that Andy did. So. Doug Peterson. Well, he was a also stubborn, of, and his game planning wasn't as inventive. Oh, like, yeah, it yeah. wasn't just that. That's no, what I'm saying. You're like you're right. You're all right. those trick plays that you thought that he was going to run, but he like, wasn't. All, but listen, all of the the interesting the interesting play design. I well, but he's not. I think I got caught up in in the fact that like I I was one of the stupid people who going into it hadn't watched a lot of Oregon games and thought that they were like a gunning yeah, but who, team, but, but they Russ, were who actually this, a running team. Who in this team. city watches a lot of college football anyway? Like, Philadelphia is just not a college football town, you know? So I think when people look at these spread offenses or whatever, they don't realize that it's just, you know, the same five plays over and over again. So I, that was to be expected, you know? That was, yeah, yeah, that was the misconception of Chip. You know, we thought it was this crazy inventive. It was actually just a very simplistic, you know, big people beat up little people sort of scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, which didn't work in the NFL, and it's 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 the current it's it's Doug Peterson. I almost said Andy Reid. It's Doug Peterson who has the, you know, wacky. I mean, just throw everything they got at you, and they just convert it. But what, talk, speaking about old coaches, like one of the things I thought last night, and I said, uh, you know, today, how m- <clears throat> think of how many ways Andy Reid would have fucked that game up last night. Mm-hmm. Like there are so many circumstances. The fourth down, you know, classic. He would, he absolutely, you know, would. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to say absolutes, but I could think of so many examples where I that would have gone wrong for Andy Reid. The whole way they, ironically, we talked about them being aggressive, right? But what really allowed them to win that game was their ability to understand the moment when they got the ball back with nine minutes to go, and rather than just try and get into this endless shootout with the Patriots, they were. They were trying to run that clock down to. I'm convinced mm-hmm. they wanted yeah. to drive that down to zero and kick a game-winning field goal and never let Tom Brady touch the ball again. And yep. this will come out in subsequent interviews, but I'm convinced that was their plan. It didn't quite work out. I mean, they, you you run out of field and time and downs and whatever, but they got pretty close. I mean, they got that that drive required them to shift course, and they were stayed aggressive. They went for it. That fourth down play to Ertz is completely being overlooked as yeah. the season. I mean, right on the line. I mean, I know it's not fourth and 26, but in terms of importance and being right there on the line, that is right there, and, and Doug, it's just overshadowed. How, hey, by the way, how how fitting was it that that fourth and 26-esque catch, Freddie Mitchell was in attendance and was standing behind Justin <laughs> Timberlake nobody, when he went up in the stands. And nobody knew it and, was him. And I... I tweeted that, and I, I think I even said that was Freddie Mitchell's best ever appearance at a Super Yeah, but Super everybody Bowl. was making these internet memes with the kid who was standing to the to the left of uh, Timberlake or to his right, right? And they were, they were you know, saying, what's this kid writing on his phone or whatever the hell? But the irony of it was that, like, nobody in, in like, 
nobody on a national level knew that Freddie friggin' Mitchell was standing to the other side of him. That's what I thought was hilarious about it. Um, that that, that uh, kid was on, actually on, just Russ, trying to take a selfie with uh, with Fred X <laughs> before Russ like just yeah, got in the way. Before Russ worldwide genocided me. No, I'm kidding. Um, Sorry. No, no, no. No, the fourth down play, whatever, and, and I don't, I forget what I was saying. They, oh, you know, they, for a, a moment there, you know, were kind of quasi-aggressive because they did actually milk the clock. But that drive, like that, it was the, it was like the upside-down version of the last Super Bowl when the Eagles needed two possessions and appeared to go with that Chiefs drive, which, by the way, Doug Peterson was a part of a few years ago, where they were going to take the ball for eight minutes and then hope to get it back on an onside kick. Like that's what that 2004 2005 Super Bowl drive was. It was the Eagles are, are like not hurrying up. They are not understanding the time and place and that your odds of stopping Tom Brady as good as he are is are still better than getting an onside kick, which is probably what they would have you know, you know, could have having have to have wound up done. I can't even talk. But that was, you know, their logic for the Chiefs. Doug Peterson and Andy and Andy Reid explained that a couple years ago, and that was one of the big red flags about Peterson. Um, turns out, probably that was more on Andy because I could foresee Andy Reid have just bumble fucking that final drive, whether it was punting it back to the Patriots on fourth down there, which in a, a, a agreed a ballsy situation to go for it, but that was a must convert fourth down. And the Eagles are like a Madden team where it's like you just sort of assume you're always working with four downs, which is kind of a cool feeling. Um, but I could see Andy have screwing that up. I could have seen him screwing up the what turned into be the the Philly special. You could see him just, you know, like those 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 third down plays where it was third and short, and they run those little what is it like a wheel route, Kevin? Like yeah, the little they wheel, cycle yeah. around. Mm-hmm. That I mean, those play calls are gutsy and inventive and the only thing that felt like an Andy recall was that third down call you wrote about Kevin where they kind of tossed it behind the line on third and eight or whatever the Aguilar pass, but yeah, yeah 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 and everyone in our room was like groaning at that but like I just I'm going back to that game like oh my god Andy Reid would have found nine ways to lose that game and Doug Peterson just he was just firing on I all just cylinders. felt like I was watching like I remember um a couple of years ago, there was a game. <laughs> there was a game where Geno Smith was still playing at West Virginia, and we had just joined the Big Twelve. And everybody was warning us, "Look, there's no defense in the Big Twelve. It's just going to be pass, 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 score." You know. And I think we beat Baylor seven, like seventy to sixty-three at home. And there was parts of the second half in the in the Super Bowl in the NFL where I felt like that, where I was like, "That's it, Brady's locked in. They're not stopping him." He was ripping off passes for 12, 13, 14, 15 yards at a time. And, uh, you know, what you were talking about, Kyle, with not giving Brady the ball back, I think at that six-minute mark when they went for it on fourth down there, I think Doug did say after the game, uh, we just knew we couldn't give it, put it back in his hands at that point, you know. Um, it just, I mean, it was one of those things where that's why I go back to the to the first half when they didn't execute on those drives, when they missed the field goal, and when they didn't get it, uh, on fourth and five, which is why I think that that stuff, while people didn't really think of it too much, that put them in the position where they needed multiple scores to get it to 33 to 32. Um, and even though the, the Eagles made a play at the very end there, to me, that was the difference because this started to look like like Texas Tech versus like Oklahoma back in like the Michael Crabtree days to me. Oh, um so I, I've been in like the midst as I'm like collecting my thoughts of apologies and I've been giving out a few recently, but uh, I think an apology is owed to Zach Ertz, who many people 
and I think rightfully so early in the season called him out as being a guy who seemed to shy away from contact. And um, Alshon Jeffrey, I don't know if you guys had this feeling or not, but I got to a point where I was watching that game, and I, I, I felt full shades of Terrell Owens in 05. I felt like it was the first time that I felt like we had that real true number one guy. And it was and it was an awesome feeling. Um, there was the the bomb that he got thrown um, on the right side of the field. He ends up kind of diving down, sliding. Sean Cottrell, I think, just tweeted out a gif of it. Uh, it was a great catch, and the jump ball touchdown um, on a bomb from Foles was. It was just a play that we needed from Alshon. It's a play that I've been hoping that they would call for him all season. And I, you know, there have been weeks. Where, you know, in the aftermath of it, I've just, you know, I guess, especially early in the season, I said, like, I don't understand how Doug doesn't get him involved. And man, the chemistry that Foles was able to develop with Alshon in, su- in such a short time and the trust that he showed in him in, in big moments was huge. And the other apology I guess I owe is to Jeff Lurie, because I think in passing at some point early in the season between the emotional intelligence line um, and and knowing that I think the story had come out early in the season that Lurie was trying to get more involved in player personnel decisions, which I said was a disaster waiting to happen. It was shades of Jerry Jones. And I think I even said, like, if he starts getting involved in that, then we are going to be considering Jeff Lurie as the worst owner in Philadelphia sports and not named Jay Sugarman. Didn't McLean have something at the beginning of the year that was kind of like controversial or something to do with the front office or something with Doug Peterson that that they weren't? happy about i don't know why i can't remember that now there was something there it wasn't the lombardi yeah, stuff because that was different that was like a national thing that was a hit piece. yeah yeah, yeah I, right i remember something there so i mean there was always kind of there was always some kind of question about this team from the from the beginning you know yeah you had like and then later in the season you had the schwartz and the di filippo and the um i guess even to a lesser extent the frank reich rumors about you know being interested in head yeah, coaching jobs, yeah. especially the Jim Schwartz early in the season was, you know, essentially looking to, uh, you know, stage a coup to run oh, the that's team. What it was. Is that what it was that I couldn't that, remember? Yeah. That was, that was oh, one that of them, but I, I definitely remember seeing Jim Schwartz walks around like he owns the Novacare. <laughs> that's yep, the story. <laughs> that, that he was essentially, you know, Chip Kelly 2.0 <laughs> yeah. as the defensive right, coordinator. Right. He was trying to usurp but, power at the Novacare complex or something, right? Man, you think, but like you think about, and and you would know this because you cover teams on the beat. But like, man, when it when a a reporter, I guess, feels like they have a scoop on something and they really want to go with it, you run the risk of just having egg on your face. And like in the in the grand scheme of things, the Eagles have won the Super Bowl, and not and nobody's really looking back on these moments, I guess, except for us. Uh, but man, there was it was either bad reporting, bad sourcing. Or, like, really, there was a come-to-Jesus moment, uh, which I think has happened with practically every player on the team. But, like, there was a divine intervention or some massive paradigm shift that happened that, like, we went from this team being a potential train wreck in the start of the season to a Super Bowl champion for the sometimes first time those in franchise are like, And history. sometimes those are galvanizing things, you know. I mean, I've had a couple run-ins like that when I was on the union beat. But, I mean, normally you don't go down that route unless – People don't publish stuff like that unless there's some modicum of truth to it, you know, and usually it gets kind of blown up a little bit along the way. But 
Um, yeah, maybe that was the case. Maybe they sat down and said, I mean, if you think about it, like there was a lot of quotes that these guys had in the playoffs where they were like not happy with the media at all. Not just like national media and stuff like that. But Michael Kendricks had some like some crazy shit to say last night, too, where he was like, you guys doubted us. You guys said this. You guys said that. So maybe there's something more to that with with Jeff's piece or whatever the heck. But uh, I mean, that's just another thing that you can throw in the pile and, and look back at when you think about how much his team uh you know, had to overcome, right? Throw all those storylines on the fire that are sure to be found in side streets leading up to the parade on Thursday. Kyle's mic is cut out. So, uh, you know, we're over an hour in here. Okay. I, I thought he came back. Yep. But, yeah. So I think it's, I think it's probably about time. We will, uh, we will be back. Oh God, my computer's about to shut down. We will be back on Wednesday with Adam. Kevin, thank yeah, you for man, joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are. The Eagles are Super Bowl 52 champions. What a time to be alive. We'll talk to you again soon.